remember um, during COVID, uh, I, I arrived here at Hope Church in May, the very first week of May, and the first, I think it was seven weeks, it was just Ken and I worshiping here all alone. And I remember driving into worship on 81, and, uh, and there was nobody. There was nobody driving. And there was nobody in the businesses. Nobody was, um, nobody seemed to be out. You know, and this was very early. Of course, we were nervous about the pandemic. We didn't know what to expect, and so we were all very compliant. But uh, what, what, it, what it brought to my mind is, as I, I drove by the businesses, I thought, what would it be like if the businesses were closed on the Lord's Day? Uh, some of you might actually remember when that was the case, when it would have um, been difficult to get anything but just basic necessities. Oftentimes, the grocery stores were open, but they had many of the aisles roped off that you could not uh, purchase certain items. They were just uh, for necessity. And in many ways, it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like in our society if we kept the Sabbath. What would it even look like? We, we live in a global economy that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Someone is always working. I, I was reminded of this once when we returned from a trip to Oklahoma and we landed in LaGuardia and we came in at like one in the morning and we were driving through New York City at two in the morning and, and I was surprised at how many people were just walking around. Uh, people were getting off work, people were going to work, and it seemed like the city was not sleeping at all. Um, and so it, it's hard for us, given the the context that we live in, a global world, 24-7 work hours, different shifts, people have to work all the time. It's hard for us to imagine what the Sabbath would even look like. And it's even harder for us to imagine that the Sabbath could be a delight. It's easy for us to imagine it being dull, a drudgery to endure, but not a delight to be enjoyed. The very word Sabbath seems to evoke these images. We picture Puritans, who, as H.L. Mencken said, had the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Of course, that's a very bad caricature of the Puritans, but... But our thoughts around the Sabbath often conjure up those kinds of images. When we hear, when our ears hear Sabbath and delight, we think they do not belong together in the same sentence. And last week we looked at some of the reasons that the Sabbath had took on the meaning that it did during Jesus' time. Where the Jews would persecute Jesus and this man because he was healed on the Sabbath and carrying his bed. We looked at how the Sabbath, uh, it's something that is good and should be preserved, but sometimes tradition builds up so thick that we forget the actual practice. We forget why it was given. We forget the intention. And today we're going to look just briefly at, at, at just two verses of this section. And really, we're just going to take this as an opportunity to ask the question, what is the Sabbath? Try to make sense of what the Sabbath is. Is it applicable to us? Is this just something for the Jews? Is this something that we should be, um, we should find important? And as we have walked through this chapter, chapter 5, we've seen how Jesus healed a man by asking him, do you want to be healed? 
And we, we then asked last week, why did this particular healing make the Jews so angry? And then this morning, we're going to uh, look at Jesus' response. So if you're, if you're able, please stand with me. We're just going to read two verses from John chapter 5. And we're going to look, launch today into kind of a biblical theological exploration of the Sabbath. We'll read just verse 16 and verse 17. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day, the day to celebrate the work that your Son has accomplished on our behalf. May we rejoice and be glad in it, for we pray this in his name, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. I just want to look at this morning under three headings. What was the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath? And what is the Sabbath for? So this morning, first, what was the Sabbath? To understand what the Sabbath was, we have to go back to the very beginning because the Sabbath was a creation ordinance. It was an ordinance given by God at the very beginning of creation. And here we find in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 three. 2 through 3, the very first instance of the Sabbath. And here it says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Notice that God rests from the work that he had done. Done. What was the work that he had done? Well, the previous six days, he labored to create everything out of nothing. He spoke and the world came into being. And then, as the very capstone, entering into rest is a celebration of all that he has done in creation. As Jesus said, his father has been working until now and I am working. Did God, when he rested on the Sabbath, stop his work of providence, of upholding the world that he had just made? No, he did not. He rested from his creative work, his work of speaking and creating. God rested from his task of creation. And the Sabbath was to be a celebratory rest, looking back over the week in joy. Sabbath, the word sounds like the word for rest. Sabbath is, is also then mentioned twice at two different occasions at the giving of the law. First in Exodus at Mount Sinai and then later to the next generation as they wander in the wilderness in a renewal of the covenant in Deuteronomy. Both of those are important because they give us different aspects of the Sabbath that were important that God wanted emphasized. First in Exodus 20, he's, this is right smack dab in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now listen to this. This is the reason given. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Notice there the emphasis is on remember. This is not a command that God is just now giving to Israel in the, in the law. This is a command that was there from the very beginning. It's embedded into the creation. It's a part of what we would call natural law. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But, but God is telling them to remember something because maybe they forgot. Maybe they have not taken the time to set that day aside to remember God's resting from his work in creation. So this emphasis in Exodus is grounded on the creation that God did in six days. But I, but I want you to notice something. When, when Moses comes to tell the law again to a new generation, how he annexes it. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15. He says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your, that your male servants and your female servants may rest as well as you. And notice this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Notice that in Exodus, it was a, a remembrance of God's creative work. But at the second generation, it is a remembrance of God's mighty power of redemption in the Exodus. They were delivered from the power of sin and death, and they are to remember the Sabbath because God brought them out. He brought them out because he gave them rest. He brought them out because he completed his work of redemption. I want you to remember that because it's going to be very important when we come back to talk about the Lord's Day. Now, there are four main views of the Christian's relationship to the Sabbath. There are many more than four, but there are at least four good ones. Uh, the first says that it's completely abolished. They appeal to texts like Roman 14, where Paul seems to suggest that one day is no better than any other. The second view is that uh, the Sabbath has been replaced with the Lord's Day, but it has absolutely no connection to the Sabbath. There's no continuity between our Sunday worship on the Lord's Day and what God commanded Israel to do on the Sabbath. They're totally distinct. The third says that the Sabbath is binding in exactly the form that it was given. And you, you might think of Seventh-day Adventists in this, in this regard. 
The fourth way, and the way that I hold to, and we hold to as a denomination, is that the Sabbath is still binding, but it undergoes transformation has been fulfilled in the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. This is the Puritan view as uh, articulated in the Westminster Confession. And this resulted, of course, in what we talked about earlier, Sunday blue laws. And uh, uh, worship was expected and work was seen as taboo. Those all come out of the Puritans' emphasis on the Lord's Day replacing and being transformed uh, of the Sabbath. The, the big question that surrounds all of these views comes down to, is the Sabbath law perpetual? Or is it ceremonial and subsequently fulfilled in Christ? And to understand that, we need to get just a, a better understanding of all the different ways that the law is thought about in the Old Testament and in the New. Uh, the laws of creation, what we call nature's laws, are the things that God uh, embedded into the world. You can think of this in terms of Romans chapter 2, when Paul says that the Gentiles who do what is right have the law written on their hearts. These, out of these things come uh, the laws of procreation, filling the earth and ruling over the creation, taking dominion, work, weekly Sabbath, marriage, and worship. All of these things that were implicit in God's creation are made explicit when God gives his Ten Commandments to his nation Israel. And so we believe that the Ten Commandments are a republishing of those original creational laws that God built into the world. The Ten Commandments we call the moral law, and they are binding on all peoples, not just Israel as a covenant people of God, but because they represent the ways that God has made the world. They apply to everyone. They apply to Gentiles. But the covenant that God made with Israel also included other laws besides the moral law. These are applications of the law into judicial cases. We call it case law system. They attempt to apply the law of God to Israel at a certain point and a certain time in history. They are agrarian. They live in a very different context than we do. And the application of the Ten Commandments is different for them. Those are judicial laws. But also, they're very unique in that they have what's called ceremonial laws. These ceremonial laws pertain to Israel as a church state nexus. They are a theocracy in the way that no other nation could claim to be. God is their king. He's their lawgiver. He governs their worship and their state. And no other nation uh, has that, that kind of qualification. Although we should want a Christian nation. I'm not, I'm not against that. I think that Israel is just unique in the ways that God called them to live out that covenant that he made with them. And part of that is that uh, it, it's, uh, these laws pertain to the sacrificial system. They um, pertain to the food laws, the things that are kosher and clean, the things that uh, separate Israel from all the nations, and circumcision and jubilees uh, and all the feast days. All of these things are unique to Israel. They're not repeatable. They're not, uh, they're, the, the transition that moves from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant was a difficult transition. 
as the people of God wrestled over these things, wrestled over what would it look like for Gentiles to be included in the people of God. Did they need to become Israel? Did they need to become Jews? Did they need to be circumcised? Must they keep these ceremonial aspects like eating certain foods and hallowing certain days? And the the New Testament authors are unanimous in their conclusion. And I'll just read from Paul in Ephesians to kind of give a, a little bit of a flavor of what God was doing as he transitions from the Old Covenant to the New. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says this. This is Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, and so making peace might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul says that in the death of Jesus Christ, the laws that pertain to Israel as a unique covenant people of God have now been fulfilled in him. He broke down that dividing wall that separated Jew from Gentile, and he knit them together as one in his death on the cross. He abolished the law of commandments and ordinance of ordinances. Well, what is that? Well, that's pertaining to the ceremonial laws. Now, the big question is, where does the Sabbath fit in here? How does the Sabbath relate to the ceremonial laws? As some have said, it's a part of the ceremonial laws and therefore it's been fulfilled in Christ and it's no longer binding on us. But what about the other Ten Commandments? Are those also a part of the ceremonial law? Has the Lord fulfilled in himself the need for us not to commit adultery? What about not to lie? What about our worship of God? It seems that it would be a very arbitrary distinction to draw out one of the Ten Commandments to say that one has been fulfilled in Christ. The confusion comes because in the Old Testament, the Sabbath refers to lots of different feasts. Lots of different feasts that painted a picture of the redemption that God had accomplished for Israel in the Exodus. Feasts that commemorated the Passover. Feasts that commemorated their wandering in the wilderness. 
those feasts have been fulfilled in Christ. Christ has uh, accomplished what those feasts were pointing to, namely the redemption of the people of God permanently. Not as a, a picture of the redemption that would come, but one that has already come. And so those various laws related to separating Jews from Gentiles have been done away with. We no longer, as Gentile Christians, need to be circumcised in order to be a part of the people of God. Circumcision, as a covenant sign, has been transformed and renewed in Christian baptism. In the same way, jubilee, uh, the jubilee laws of seven years and the 50th year where the land should have rest have been fulfilled in Christ. They're no longer uh, a part of uh, our uh, responsibility as new covenant believers, as the scope is not the land of Israel, but the whole world. And God is um, looking for us to expand his glory by spreading his image throughout the world. That is what was the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest to commemorate creation and God's redemption in the Exodus. But what is the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath today? If it is a perpetual creation ordinance that's been partially fulfilled in Christ, in the sense that it's no longer on Saturday, it's no longer commemorating the, uh, the work of creation in the same way or the work of redemption in the Exodus, if that is the case, then why? Why was there a change? And Christ did not remove the command to set aside the pattern that God had set of working six days and resting for one. In fact, explicitly, Christ said nothing about changing the Sabbath. Most of his confrontation with the Pharisees was over abuses that had accumulated around the Sabbath, but not, but not doing away with it altogether. But it was the implications of what he accomplished that changed the Sabbath. It was what he did. It was the work that he came to. It was the task that God gave him to do, to labor in, that uh, is the reason why this, this, the, uh, the Sabbath is transformed to the Lord's Day. And I want to look at one, one little text which we already responded together, Psalm 118. It's one of the most famous psalms in the New Testament for its application to Jesus Christ. And, and in verse 22, it says a very important phrase that became the hallmark for the apostles' preaching. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The, the New Testament authors take this text up and they apply it to Jesus. Jesus is the stone. He's the stone that they rejected. And think about that. Think about how the people that he came to rejected him as their Messiah. He came as the one anointed, David's son, the greater David who was going to lead his people in a new exodus, but they rejected him. And instead of, re- of receiving him as their Messiah, they murdered him. He was the stone that the builders rejected. But that very stone became the cornerstone. How is it that something that could be rejected by the people can suddenly become the cornerstone? The one that everything else is built upon. When they rejected, when they rejected Jesus by murdering him on the cross, they thought that was the end. 
They thought that it was over, that they had put down a false teacher who would lead the people of Israel astray. But little did they know that three days later, the Lord Jesus would rise again from the dead. And it was in his resurrection that he became the cornerstone. His resurrection was on the first day of the week. And it became the first day of the new creation. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. It's like a down payment. As Jesus in him, in his own resurrection, looks, anticipates our own resurrection. And then it was 50 days later, on another first day of the week, Pentecost, when the Spirit of Christ was poured out on his disciples. And the disciples began to get a sense of the, of the fact that what happened in the resurrection changed everything. That nothing in the world would ever be the same again. That because of that momentous event, all of history would be different. Including how they acted as Jews, how they treated Gentiles, and what the church was for. But going back to Psalm 118, we need to ask, how did the psalmist anticipate they would celebrate this rejected cornerstone? Just a few verses down, the psalmist said, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day. And they're speaking there of Resurrection Sunday, of the first day of the week that God had crowned His new creation with rest on the first day of the week. To signify not only His completion of the new creation, but His finished work in redemption. I told you those two Those two things would be important. The first Sabbath celebrated God's creative work and his redemptive work in the Exodus. Jesus' Sabbath, the Lord's Day, celebrates his new creation work and his finished redemptive work on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And that became the Christian Sabbath. As the people of God outlined in verses like Acts 20, verse 7, gathered on the first day of the week to hear the apostles' teaching and to break bread. And later, when Paul encourages the Corinthians to set something aside when you gather on the first day of the week so that you can care for the needs of those who are uh, in Jerusalem under the famine. And then Paul or John, the Apostle John in the Revelation, is, on, is in the Spirit worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And so because of the work that Jesus did, fulfilling the Sabbath and transforming it into the Lord's Day, it's the same. The law has, has not changed. Its original intent was to enter into the rest of God. The rest that he accomplished by finishing his task of creating the world and also of redeeming Israel in the Exodus. The same is true for the Lord's Day. We enter into the rest of Christ's creative work and redemption by resting from our own works. Jesus doesn't condemn the Sabbath as given by God, but but the traditions that had grown up around it given by men. Jesus heals a man lame for 38 years on the Sabbath. Does he break the law? And of course, this provokes the question, what is the Sabbath for? 
We've seen what the Sabbath was. We've seen what the Sabbath is. But what was its original intention? Why was it given? What's it for? And this confrontation with the Jews illustrates this. No, the Sabbath was a day of rest and worship to celebrate God's work. It was not breaking the Sabbath for this man to carry his bed when he was healed. That's a character of the law, and it misses the whole point. Knowing what the Sabbath is for will help us apply it to our celebration of the Lord's Day. The Sabbath is a delight because the Sabbath is a picture of the gospel. Now think about this with me for a moment. Man was created on the sixth day, the very last of creation. And that means that man's very first day, full day in the world, was the day of rest. Adam's very first day in the presence of God, his very first full day, was a day of rest. What had he done to earn that rest? What work had Adam accomplished on his very first day of living? Had he tended and kept the garden? Had he labored and toiled to bring up the gold that was downstream? Had he even been fruitful and multiplied? Had he subdued or ruled over any of the creation? Did Adam earn his rest by his works? No. Adam was invited to rest in the finished work of God. And God invites man to enter into rest. The gospel indicatives declare to you all that God in Christ has done for your recreation. He has made you new in Christ Jesus. You did not do anything to accomplish that recreative work of redemption. You were passive in receiving the redemption that Jesus worked hard to accomplish. His perfect keeping of the law and his sacrificial death on your behalf. And he invites you to enter into his rest on the first day of the week to celebrate his resurrection from the dead. The Sabbath is is God's gospel offer of rest. It's not a duty, it's a delight because it's saturated with the gospel. What the Jews were doing flipped that logic on its head. They thought that by keeping the Sabbath as a list of what not to do, and especially if it was very hard, God would be pleased to offer them rest. They thought if we keep this rest that God has given to us, He'll give us rest. That doesn't even make logical sense. And I, I stress first and foremost that the Sabbath is rest. And as such, what was true of the seventh day Sabbath and the old covenant is also true of the Lord's day. It should be a day when we rest from our vocations. And in Exodus 23, 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And, and listen to why that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Why are you to cease your vocational work so that you can rest, but also so that others can enter into that rest? Sabbath is about justice. We read that in our text from Isaiah 56. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 18, asks this. Why is the charge of keeping the Sabbath 
more specially directed to governors of families and other superiors. The charge of keeping the Sabbath is more specially directed to governors of families and other superiors because they are bound not only to keep it themselves, but to see that it be observed by all those that are under their charge. And because they are prone, oftentimes, to hinder them by employments of their own. If If you've been familiar with Orthodox Jews, you'll know that they have no problem asking a Gentile to work for them on the Sabbath, even to come and turn their lights on for them, right? The goyim can come and work. But that's not the principle of the law. That's not what God is teaching them. Because the ordinance is a creational, it extends to everyone. And because we are most prone as employers to think, well, yeah, I like the idea of rest. That's fine for me, but I, I, I think my people should still have to work. I mean, I don't want my factory to go under. I mean, just think of the economics of this. I, I don't think we can sustain this. But look at Chick-fil-A, the successful company who people mock at, who refuses to do work on the Lord's Day. That's a company that gets it. And do you think they're struggling financially? No, God is blessing them because they take this seriously, that they provide a space because the Sabbath is about justice. It's about preparing a time for others to enter into that rest too. So care should be taken that we're not hindering others from entering into that rest. Does your going to a restaurant after service enable the staff to rest? As you're grabbing a Starbucks on the way to church, enable the barista to rest. I don't want to give a whole list of do's and don'ts. That's not what it's about. It's about asking yourself, am I preparing for the Lord's day? Am I allowing myself to rest and those that I can offer that to? Am I making it more difficult and challenging for others to enter into the rest that God has it can be easy for us to draft a list of do's and don'ts. But that's, that's not the point. The point is you should rest whatever that looks like in your life. If you're a professional ball player, you probably shouldn't play a pickup game of basketball. If you landscape for a living, you probably shouldn't mow your yard on the, on the Lord's Day. Some people find those activities relaxing. And recreative. If you don't mow lawns for a living, is it wrong for you to mow your lawn on the Lord's Day? Probably not. That might be restful. For others, it might not be. It takes wisdom to know, are we entering into the rest that God has prepared for us? And are we extending that rest to others around us? Secondly, the Sabbath is for worship. We have a near unanimous support from the history of the church for the setting aside of the Lord's day of a day of rest for work from work and to gather together to worship as the body of Christ. Almost unbroken until the 20th, 21st century where now we found all kinds of ways to, to change when we gather as the people of God. Saturday night or Tuesday or whatever it is. But through, that's not the greatest argument for church history. Of course, there's lots of, of practices that the church has done that are maybe not faithful. But we should pay attention if that we have a near unanimous support as setting aside the Lord Day, Lord's Day for rest 
and worship. The Lord's Day is a day for the people of God to gather and rejoice in His resurrection. We say, He is risen! And you respond with, And that is true every Lord's Day. Because every Lord's Day we are celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just Easter. Why? Because Jesus has finished His works And he's entered his rest because Jesus is restoring the creation that was marred by sin because Jesus has redeemed a people and is recreating them in his image. One theologian has said that the Sabbath in Genesis 2 introduces eschatology into the story. That means that there is the promise at the very beginning that there's something better to come. That there's a a rest that we look forward to. The author of Hebrews picks up on this. He's in the process of giving an exposition of Psalm 95, and he's using Israel as an example of what not to do. Canaan, the promised land, was a temporal Sabbath rest. Israel was going to inherit that. They were going to go and rest in a land that they did not prepare. They did not build the houses for. They didn't plant the vineyards. They were going to reap all the benefits of others' work. But they failed to enter that rest. Why? Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore... It remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And the author of Hebrews reasons that if God offered rest to his people after they refused to enter his rest under Joshua, then there must be a greater rest that is to come. Who will lead us there? The greater Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, the great conqueror, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And don't miss this. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. I just want to draw two implications from this. 
To enter God's rest means resting from your own works. And I don't just mean your vocational works, but I mean resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot do anything in this life to commend yourself to God. He's already done it. He's already made you perfect in Jesus Christ. You're already commendable. But only by faith. Only by setting aside your works, your striving to enter into the work that God has done in Jesus Christ. Stop working. It won't work. Enter into the work Jesus already accomplished by resting in him. What kept Israel from entering into the rest? Unbelief. They didn't believe. Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Then enter into that rest. Then rest in that work that he's accomplished. Secondly, the Lord's Day is the Christian Sabbath. When we gather by faith to remember the resurrection of Christ, we celebrate entering into his rest by beginning our week with rest and worship. We begin our week with rest and worship. It reminds us that we work out of that rest, just as the indicatives and the imperatives of the gospel remind us that there are things that we do to obey God, but we must not mix the order up. It's the same for our vocational work. We rest, and out of that rest we go and work. We go and labor. We go out into the world refreshed because we have been in the presence of God. Refreshed because our sins are forgiven and we're resting in Christ. Do you see now how the Sabbath can be a delight? Do you hear Jesus call you to rest? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we... We give you thanks for the finished work of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, who is our rest. And we come this morning to rest in him. Prepare our hearts to receive him now. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That is precisely what Jesus is doing in this meal that he has laid before us. Just as this day belongs to Jesus, so also does this table belong to Jesus. And like the best of hosts, he has furnished his table with something greater than the best food and the the best wine. He furnished this table with himself, his own body and his precious blood. The Lord's Day is an invitation to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that invitation would not be complete if if it did not include the sign and the seal of that rest given in this meal. Just as you have heard his voice throughout the service, calling you to confession and pardoning your guilt, calling you to rest and then offering you in a visible word, a sign and a seal of your participation in his death and resurrection. That is a a participation in the rest that he earned by completing his task of redemption. For he is at rest, sitting now at the right hand of his father. And by grace through faith, we are made partakers of that rest. As Christ, spiritually present to all who those who worthily receive him. But just as the Sabbath can be abused, becoming anything but a delight, so also can the supper be abused. 
when superstitiously we attribute something has changed in these common elements, or, or when we empty the supper of any presence of Christ, making it just a memorial, or when in a meal meant to signify our unity in the body of Christ, we harbor contention and bitterness towards a brother or sister for whom Christ died. The Apostle Paul said that some are sick and some have even died because they so mistreated the body of Jesus Christ. Like all the good gifts God has given us, the supper can be abused. But that's no reason to avoid it. Rather, it is a call to examine our hearts, confess our sins, and then come and celebrate the feast. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. As the elders come forward,